Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Heather O'Reilly calling us in about 40 minutes. She called the Women's World Cup. She's represented the USA in international competition at the highest level. She's a star for the North Carolina Courage. She's back in that uniform. We'll catch her coming off the practice pitch now that she's back on American soil. Heather O'Reilly in about 40 minutes. Richard Justice will help us celebrate baseball, the all-star game tonight, the home run derby last night. You can join us between now and then at 1-800-849-2761. Quick input from Paul, who writes to dglenn at accsports.com. Darren, do you know how to tell the difference? between, let's say, a pathological liar, uh, a cult leader, and an otherwise honest person? Would you have probably a long list of yeah, differences? No, there? That, yeah, there are some, some okay. indicators. Here's a key one. The pathological liar is told that his information is wrong and just repeats it the next day and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. It doesn't care. Might not know the first time, and we could all have that mistake. Sure. The pathological liar sees evidence that is not true and just hopes people are stupid or gullible enough to just believe it because if he repeats it enough times, then that must make it true in this never-never land. Same with cult leaders. They tend to not like admitting when they're wrong. Paul has pointed out, and because we are well-trained journalists here at the David Glenn Show, do you know what the proper response when somebody tells you that you said something inaccurately? proper response if you're an actual journalist is thank you now you hope that they're nice about it and not everybody pointing out your mistakes is nice in this world i can promise you that but paul was incredibly nice he wanted to make sure that in an otherwise dazzling sandlot presentation we recognize the inaccuracy of i believe it was said that smalls was chased when of course it was benny the jet that was chased. I was probably so... Oh, this is by the beast. Correct, the dog. by yeah, the beast. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was so overwhelmed by the brilliance of intern Will in countless ways that I, that reference just went right by me. He would mention the dog chasing somebody. I didn't even realize it was an inaccurate reference. So thanks to Paul. I mean, seriously, like, thank you to Paul for pointing out the inaccuracy bonus points for being nice. Cult leaders and pathological liars do not react to when their inaccuracies are pointed out that way, and that is a very easy way for Americans to identify the difference between one and the other. What is the most interesting thing going on in the sports world as we speak? I would not, in the interest of candor and honesty, try to convince you that the answer is the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. As a baseball guy, I will watch, but I, I am not in the business of trying to convince you that things that are only moderately important are actually important. I know what my job description is. Major League Baseball game, All-Star game is intriguing. I'm going to have it on in the background, but it's a secondary product to me. Similarly, NBA Summer League action. Do I want to see some of the guys that I covered as ACC members as their young professionals, their dreams are coming true, and you get to see what they're like, not against the real NBA, if you will, but against other first- and second-year players. That's the essence of the Summer League. Might I tune in? Maybe, maybe not. Those chances went down when I learned no Zion Williamson, no more Cam Johnson, no Ty Jerome of UVA. 
I mean, I still want to see some of the other highest picks. I might tune in, but again, I'm not in the business of trying to convince you that something is uber important when it's really only like just another option on the sports menu. My answer to the question, what is the most compelling, interesting, powerful, worth following story in the sports world right now? I don't even know what would be a close second since the Women's World Cup is over. Obviously, the NHL and NBA championships are long behind us. NBA free agency, now that's front burner stuff. You can't understand the NBA without following that part of the offseason. But free agency is now almost entirely over. I know some guys are still looking for their homes. But rosters finally have a lot of clarity. And really, for the first time in a long time, you could do NBA power rankings without it being so weird that you're trying to say, well, where are the Lakers going to be? I don't know. They only have three players right now. You have more flushed-out rosters, and you can have that game. But again, the bigger part of that is behind us. I think the correct answer is Serena Williams as she, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, played earlier today at Wimbledon, the quarterfinals. Spoiler alert, I'm about to tell you what happened earlier today. Spoiler alert. 29-year-old Allison Risk of Pennsylvania had made her longest run in any major in her entire career and then ran into the GOAT. Serena Williams. So it's American versus American this morning. And spoiler alert, spoiler alert, Serena eliminated Allison Risk, as everybody would have predicted. So Serena is on to the semifinals. Why does this matter? Well, I would argue that it is the biggest ongoing story because Serena Williams is the greatest of all time, because Serena Williams is a seven-time Wimbledon champion, because Serena Williams is a 23-time Grand Slam singles champion, that's more than any man ever. And in the open era, as it's called, it's more than any woman ever. So as great as Nadal and Djokovic and Federer are on the men's side, Serena's numbers, seven Wimbledon titles, 23 Grand Slam singles titles, Serena's numbers are the greatest of all time in what is called the open era. Now, there's an amazing player from the pages of history named Margaret Court who actually had 24 in a different era under very different circumstances. So make of that what you will. If there's anybody for Serena to chase, it would be that. She's only one behind that number, which, was, again, was done at a different time under different rules. Who was eligible for that competition? It was not as complicated to put it succinctly, back then as it is now. More players, more money, more investment, more resources, more people from more parts of the world competing for these titles. The reason it's front burner urgent material, as Serena Williams is in the Final Four, is that she is 37 years old, and she has now gone two and a half calendar years since her last Grand Slam singles title. Now, when I watch her play... Do I still think she's one of the greatest in the world? Absolutely, yes. She's an 11 seed at Wimbledon just because of how the rules work. It's not that she's only the 11th best talent. It's, it's, it's somewhat subjective. There's some objectivity to it. But when you take a long time off to have a baby and go through a complicated pre pregnancy and – allow your body to recover. And in her case, it's been two and a half calendar years since winning a Grand Slam title, in part because she missed four straight, right? Like, you can't win the ones you don't play. So she missed four entirely. Last calendar year, 
She was the runner-up at Wimbledon, this same event. She was the runner-up at the U.S. Open. So she's even proved post-pregnancy that she remains one of the best players in the world. As we saw with LeBron James's first major injury of his NBA career, right? He's only 34, but is it mere coincidence that that groin injury that complicated his first season with the Lakers, why didn't that happen at 19 or 22 or 25 or 28 or 31? Why? Because father time and mother nature are both undefeated and always will be. Now, LeBron's numbers are actually magically great for his age bracket. But again, he had a complication with his body. That happens more often as you get older, period. Serena's 37 and post-pregnancy and is contending again. But two and a half years is a long time especially in the sport of tennis, where we just saw Coco Golf make a run at 15 years old to the round of 16. This is a young person's game. It may not be as extreme as gymnastics, right? Where, oh my gosh, if you turn 20, you're starting to get old in gymnastics. If you're 25, you're ancient. And if you're closing in on 30, they're looking for your, you know, you're getting AARP mailings in the mailbox every day, right? Tennis is not that extreme. But it's fairly extreme. And whereas we have ageless wonders like the 30-somethings, Roger Federer is the number two seed at Wilmington, and in his late 30s, Djokovic and Nadal are the one and two seeds, and they're in their earlier 30s. So they're all post-30, but Serena post-pregnancy at 37, two and a half years removed from her last major championship. You just don't know. How much more sand is left in that hourglass, if you will? And when you're already the goat in the history of women's tennis, but you do have this 24 from another era number to chase, and you've been stuck on 23 for two and a half calendar years now, you're still the highest paid women's athlete in the world most years. And I I think she still has time left in that, given her endorsements and her popularity. But the competition part of the equation is a shorter timetable. And that applies to everybody. It's only a matter of degree. She's in the semifinals. She's had early exits at some of these majors post-pregnancy. But she had that runner-up at Wimbledon. She had that runner-up at the U.S. Open in 2018. Who knows how many more majors where she's going to be in the semifinals. Kind of like Tiger chasing Jack. Like, we thought he might never get off 14. And for more than 10 years, he didn't. But then he got the 15th, and now it's fun again. Might he get to Jack's magical 18 major championships number? Maybe, maybe not, but it got a heck of a lot more interesting. Tiger, too, is at, is at that advanced age in his early 40s at this point. Serena, only 37. And that's the bad news. Semifinals is good news, and I believe the top six or seven seeds have already been eliminated. That means the door is not cracked. The door is wide open for Serena to win Wimbledon number eight. That's just an insane number. And Grand Slam singles title number 24, even at 37. And we'll welcome your calls on the other side. Richard Justice and Heather O'Reilly later this hour. Even at 37. She went from beating in singles competition fellow American Allison Risk this morning. You know what she's doing this afternoon? She's playing in mixed doubles with Andy Murray. 
I mean, Andy Murray's like a god in the United Kingdom. He's no longer, for a while, he was the big four of men's tennis, right? I mean, he's not that dangerous. He's had a lot of injury issues. Still great when healthy. But wasn't that a fun pairing? I mean, who follows mixed doubles most of the time? There's usually not much reason to even know who's paired with whom. To me, that's worth following. They've already won to get to this point. It's not that far advanced in mixed doubles. It doesn't get much attention. But I think they moved the pairing of Andy Murray and Serena Williams like to center court, which is, you know, that's the be-all, end-all of Wimbledon as the fans gravitate to that for the biggest matches. Rarely mixed doubles, but certainly so when Andy Murray and Serena Williams are teammates from opposite sides of the pond. 1-800-849-2761. Last chance for calls today on the other side, including the question of the day. Which sport does this all-star thing best and why? The NBA is leading. NASCAR, the NFL, and Major League Baseball are next. The NHL, the MLS, and others are getting votes. 1-800-849-2761. Tonight, it is the Midsummer Classic, 8 o'clock Fox, 34 men on each side. Darren, I have one more hopefully interesting thing that I promised you about the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, how it was born, and how it has evolved over time. I went, what, two out of three? Yeah, I surpri- two, two for three now. You I surprised, surprised you with two out of the three. Sort of the origin story pieces. You All right. two that involve that. I... I don't think I'll get you on this one, but I will I will happily okay. take two out of four since you are an educated baseball guy. It's intriguing to me in part because in my own way as a child and Phillies fan in Philadelphia, I participated in this scandalous aspect of the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. That story with your calls next on The David Glenn Show. Mike Krzyzewski joining us. We asked folks you work with at Duke if you've changed or mellowed over the years. Well, you know, mellow is having a glass of wine and looking over, you know, the sunset, you know. Uh, I don't see how you can be mellow and coach a game. That can't happen. If it does, then you shouldn't be coaching. Keep it here on the David Glenn Show. Show. Last call for phone calls is now because we have two more great guests on the way. Heather O'Reilly just called the Women's World Cup, has represented our country in all of those elite international competitions as a star player for Team USA. She's still a star on the pitch for the North Carolina Courage, back with her NWSL team after off out of the broadcast booth, off the practice pitch, she will be calling us in about 20 minutes or so. Heather O'Reilly later this hour on soccer. Richard Justice in about 10 minutes on baseball with the All-Star game tonight. Your phone calls now, including on the lingering question of the day. One thing I promised and then we'll come to you. Which sport does this All-Star thing best and why? The NBA, which offers a combination of concerts, a celebrity game, luminaries from all sorts of American society, hanging out on the sidelines. Again, Darren and I were there in Charlotte this year as the Hornets played host to the NBA's annual version of this event. We saw great concerts. You get to see, unlike in the NFL, where, you know, helmets are on as the Pro Bowl is underway, you only get to see so much personality when a guy's helmets are on. You see a little more personality with baseball players. The NHL All-Star Game, once here in Raleigh, You know, with the helmets again, you can see smiles. Guys are having fun. 
uh, you know, the rule of thumb is less defense, more offense. That applies to most of these. But I like the NBA's version the best. Votes for NASCAR, the NFL, the NHL, MLS, and, yes, Major League Baseball, as that game is tonight in Cleveland. You can jump in on that question. Which sport does this all-star thing best and why? 1-800-849-2761. Richard Justice on baseball later. Heather O'Reilly on soccer later. One thing I promised and then those calls. All right, Darren, I gave you my first three hopefully interesting things that even you as a baseball guru and young up-and-coming baseball broadcaster probably did not know about the all-star game how it was born how it has evolved over time you did not know that a sports writer came up with the original idea again it was arch ward of the chicago tribune he thought that since chicago was celebrating the 100th anniversary of its first incorporation in 1833 so that would be 1933 the celebration arch ward said why don't we just have a baseball game with all the best mlb players as the featured stars we have other kinds of entertainers we have comiskey park available here in chicago it was a sports writer's idea and it was born in 1933 the second thing that i got you on is that the first all-star game was supposed to be the only all-star game proved to be so popular at what was called the Chicago World Fair in 1933. The commissioner went from giving his approval for a one-time only event to, hey, what about having this every year? And hence, dazzling detail number two. Now, you got me on number three. You know roster sizes have been going up. Right. You don't have to be an historian to fully appreciate. I was a little surprised by the numbers. They've almost doubled in size. There were 18 men on each side in 1933. There will be 34 men on each side tonight <laughs> at Progressive Field in Cleveland. 34 has been the number since 2010, I believe. So it's been a gradual progression from 18 to 34 since 1933. All right, the fourth and final, hopefully interesting, part of the All-Star game that you probably did not know, although you probably are aware of it in the more general sense. Stuffing the ballot box has occasionally been a ginormous issue for the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. There have been times, even dating to before when I was born, there have been times, one example, an extreme one, 1957. Cincinnati Reds fans, you got to think pre-internet, right? This is not just go on and click with whoever Man, you think should start at shortstop. I don't know an MLB All-Star Game in my lifetime in which I was a fan and wanted to vote for the All-Stars in which I could not do it online. Okay, let me ask you to just picture this. Would you understand what the phrase punch card would mean? Yeah, yeah. You so could, you submit your vote by punching a hole in a okay. certain box or area that designates whatever. All right, so like shortstop, there's Darren Vaught, comma, your team. David Glenn, comma, my team. Intern Will, comma, his team. And then the fan on this physical ballot, and this is what I grew up with. So I have seen the online balloting you're talking about for a couple decades, or several decades, I guess, at this yeah. point. <laughs> maybe three, right? Maybe. 90s? Part, part of Part three. of the 90s. Yeah. Okay. So 25 years, maybe, let's say. I was there at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, where when my family and friends and I would go to Phillies games – and it was close to, this wasn't done all year, but it was closer, whatever the voting period was. I don't remember which months they collected ballots for that year's All-Star game. You don't do it from opening day because you haven't seen who's having the best year, right? You have to have it a little closer 
to the July All-Star break so that you have more intelligent data to go with. I remember vividly the usher or usherette handing us these paper ballots where, again, all you did was with a pen or a pencil or whatever, you had, or the end of your sunglasses, right? You'd poke out on this punch card the hole next to whatever. Pete Rose, you know, Mike Schmidt was the third baseman for the Phillies. Now, you could get all Homer if you wanted, or you could take the more open-minded approach and just vote for the people who deserved it most, right? And I don't have a problem with either way, frankly. If you want to stuff the ballot box in that context, go ahead and stuff the ballot box. 1957, Cincinnati Red fans voted this old-school way so frequently that the eight position players in the National League were going to be seven members of the Cincinnati Reds with only Stan Musial of the St. Louis Cardinals at first base (laughs) being the exception to the Reds rule. Like, I guess they were guilty enough that they were like, well, Musil's at first base. I mean, you know, let's just (laughs) – but the other seven, the rest of Team NL was going to be the Cincinnati Reds, some of them deserving, but probably half of them not so much. The commissioner had to step in. The commissioner had to disallow some of the Reds players – fraudulent balloting style, if you will. It was a little bit more mixed NL team with a heavy Cincinnati Reds flavor, but not seven out of eight. And that 1957 scandal was one of only many. And even in your internet voting online age, there was an example from 2015 where, you know, you get the right computer guru, they can create a program where even if you're only from your computer and they know your IP address, whatever, this program or that, In 1999, a Red Sox fan used a computer program to vote for Nomar Garcia-Para 39,000 times. And more recently, in 2015, the Kansas City Royals fans stuffed the ballot box so much that eight of their players were leading the ballots at their respective positions before the final tally was taken. Now, again, that result did not stand but Mike Trout was the only AL guy, not a Kansas City Royal, yeah, in the starting eight one. or nine, whatever. <laughs> when I would walk down to my seat at Veterans Stadium, and frankly, we were usually in the nosebleeds, not down low, because they were encouraging ballot stuffing. If you were interested in filling out a ballot, they handed you, I mean, imagine my like 12, the size of my 12-year-old hands. They would hand you a stack of ballots so that if you wanted to vote a hundred times with that stack, and I, I got to the point where I knew how many ballots can I hold together where the force of the end of a ballpoint pen will knock all ten of those little punch, <laughs> those little what, hanging chads. Yeah. <laughs> if you tried the whole hundred, you couldn't poke it all the way through as you were voting for Mike Schmidt all 100 times. But 10 at a time, and you become a little ten more efficient. 10 at a time, you know, you <laughs> ask your sister to do a few, ask your dad to do a few. Anybody who didn't know what they were voting for, I just told them for whom to vote. I was a ballot box stuffer back then. They did gradually change the rules to try to make it more fair. 
I'll give you a, I'll give you a green light for that one. You knew ballot boxing has been an is- ballot stuffing has been yeah. an issue in the and, major and league even in the All-Star more game. modern online versions. I think it's limited to twenty five ballots. I per got person. you two out of four though. Yeah, no, that's pretty good. We're celebrating baseball today, including our visit with Richard Justice. He does great work for the MLB Network and MLB.com. There are a lot of young, talented players in tonight's Major League Baseball All-Star Game. Heather O'Reilly on soccer in 15 minutes. Richard Justice on baseball next. Ruffin McNeil, welcome back. I know we'll always be a huge part of you and your family. You know, this will be my last coaching stop after this. Yeah, maybe join you on a radio show or Amen. do some of that. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be doing some remote shows from your boat in the middle of the Caribbean somewhere <laughs> if I have my way. You're listening to The David Glenn Show. David Glenn Show, did you know that last night at the Home Run Derby, as Vlad Guerrero Jr. kind of stole the show, but the Mets' Pete Alonso was the official winner. Did you know that for every home run hit last night, Major League Baseball donated an extra $1,000 to their $250,000 donation to Little League Baseball? One more reason to celebrate the all-star break the big game of course is tonight at eight o'clock joining us now to discuss all things in this great sport find his columns at mlb.com find him with the mlb network as well richard justice welcome back to the david glenn show how are you i'm good david how are you doing i'm doing really well some people are most excited about home runs tonight and last night others are most excited about the youth on the National League uh, squad, among other things. What uh, is on your short list of reasons to watch tonight's All-Star game in Cleveland? Oh, I would say all of the above. I mean, it's the youngest National League starting lineup in history, but that reflects what the game is. About more than half the team is 25 or under, uh, and that reflects where the game is going. Player development's looked at differently. We've got these waves of young players coming in, like two 20-year-olds, Fernando Tatis and Laguero Jr., who are just amazing players. So it's a show. This is a the, the, the third of a three-day showcase for the game, starting with the Futures game, all these amazing young guys on Sunday, and then the home run contest last night, and then the uh, the, the All-Star game. It's a, it's a great showcase for the game. Some of the players have been quoted during these festivities as saying, among other things, it's all about your OPS nowadays. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up where batting average mattered more and ERA mattered more. For those who don't know, of course, Richard does, but it's your on-base percentage plus your slugging percentage. Some say modern-day MLB is all about home runs, walks, and strikeouts. Uh, is that an oversimplification? What can you tell us about the trends and whether or not those trends are good for our game? Well, there's never been um, – there's many more sophisticated ways than ever before to assess a player, to evaluate a player. And basically, I think OPS gets back to the heart of the matter is on-base percentage is more important than batting average. Batting average is not the best way to to uh, gauge how a player is doing. On-base percentage is how many times you're getting on base. In other words, there's some value in walks, yep. too. And the OPS is taking the home run ball, the slugging percentage, and combining that with the on-base percentage. And basically, for people who don't know, 800 is a good OPS, 900 is a really good OPS, and then 1,000 is the elite players, the Mike Trouts, the Christian Yelichs, and, and, and those guys. The three true outcome, this is sort of what happens when you put the smart guys in charge. There are guys all over front offices 
that have these advanced degrees, and they have figured out that uh, it's it, pitching is taught differently, hitting is taught yep. differently than ever before, and players are evaluated differently. But you see it in the NBA. What's still valued now? The three-point shot in the NBA, in the NFL, players are, uh, are. I mean, teams are passing more, so it's, it's an evolution of the game. It's organic, and we'll see how it goes back. How they adjust the home run, the launch angle, getting the ball in the air. That was looked at as a, a way to counter uh, the, these radical defensive shifts. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see how people go back. You know, you, when you were a kid playing little league ball, yeah. you were taught keep the ball down. Now pitchers are taught throw high fastballs because teams like the Oakland A's and Billy Bean are going out and getting guys with lo- low swing plane. So the, the, the complicated part of it uh, in assessing players is really fascinating. And for some of the for some of us on the outside, sometimes it's hard to understand what they see and what they're looking for. Richard Justice is joining us on All Star Game Day. You can follow him on Twitter at Richard Justice. Find his work at MLB.com. When it comes to those home runs, obviously, what you just outlined there uh, offer big chunks of the explanation for why individual teams are setting, you know, most home runs hit records, most home runs allowed records, and the league as a whole uh, is going to break last year's record for the most home runs. Beyond the philosophical changes of pitchers and batters, what about the ball? What, what is your bottom line there as folks wonder about the juiced baseball and its contribution? Well, it's different. The ball is different. And uh, I, I'm old enough to have gone through this a few times, I think it was in 1999, Buck Showalter was able to close his eyes and reach into a basket full of basketball, uh, baseballs and pick out the one that was that year's ball. It was wound a little t- more tightly, and the ball traveled farther. Baseball now knows that the pill at the center of the ball is centered more than ever before. That cuts down on drag. Uh, there's some thought that the, the threads are smaller, uh, and that cuts down on drag, so the ball carries farther. There's no question the ball is carrying farther. Uh, is that a bad thing or home runs a bad thing? Secondly, how do you fix it? And I think that's what baseball is wrestling with. Rob Manfred once said, um, the quickest way I could lose my job is monkey with the ball because if you start trying to monkey with it, um, you could have the top home run hitter hitting 10 or the top run, home run hitter hitting 100. It's going, trying to find that balance. And um, not any easy answers for that. And also for pitchers like Justin Verlander said yesterday, the ball is juiced intentionally to increase home runs. But what hitters would tell you is there are so many other variables. Batters are taught to get the ball in the air. That has never been taught before. Pitchers are throwing differently than ever before. There's a, a, an emphasis on spin rate and velocity. It was never there before. Um, so it's a lot of different variables. And let's face it, a lot of the ballparks are smaller than, than in previous years. So... Yeah, it's, it, the question for me would be, is this a bad thing? Do you find the game enjoyable? And I think that's what that's beauty in the eye and the beholder. I still like going to the ballpark. I watch three or four or five games a night, at least pieces of them. So I, I still am pretty entertained by the sport. I'm up against the clock, so I'll have to be short with this. I am curious because I've followed your work for so long. I feel like you have written about baseball from virtually every conceivable angle. We've had fun today with the origin of the baseball all-star game. Did did you know, you've probably written about this, but a sports writer for the Chicago Tribune, Arch Ward, is the guy who came up with the idea for this thing in 1933, and supposedly it was going to be a one-time thing. And now here we are all these years later, we have one every year. 
Yeah, and we used to have two every year. So I think it's a great showcase, and I think that's the way you, you, should, you should look at it that way. This is a chance for the best of the best to gather in one room, and I think players consider it an honor to be chosen. There's nothing I could say to Richard Justice that, that would educate him in the sport of baseball. I think I've exhausted all of my possibilities. That was today's All-Star Game attempt to do that. Richard, thank you. Uh, we always enjoy your visits here on the David Glenn Show. Thank you, David. You got it. On Twitter at RichardJusticeOnline.MLB.com. Heather O'Reilly has worn the red, white, and blue for Team USA. She's back in a soccer uniform on a soccer practice pitch today as a member of the best women's soccer club on planet earth that would be the north carolina courage right here the leaders of the nwsl and champions of that league she was the broadcaster front and center for fox sports next to alexi lawless and others at the women's world cup in france she has seen this great game from virtually every angle she joins us next to talk all things soccer heather o'reilly next on the david glenn show UNC coach Roy Williams is joining us. You are uncomfortable with your name in the same sentence as Dean Smith. I know that I will never be as good as he was in, in any way. Yet when I hear people say those things, yeah, those things are pretty neat. I, but I try to make sure that's about as far as I go. Keep it here on the David Glenn Show. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Our next guest is a superstar in every way. We get her coming off the practice pitch for the North Carolina Courage, champions of the NWSL. We're getting her fresh from Paris, France, where she was among those directing the broadcast booth for Fox Sports. She has worn the red, white, and blue for Team USA herself. Heather O'Reilly, welcome back to the David Glenn Show. How are you? <laughs> Thank you, David. Yeah, I'm doing great. I mean, a little sleepy, but all good. Well, it's great to have you back. Given that you've worn those colors and, of course, are a proud American who has won at virtually every level, I mean, you were a very good broadcaster and objective when you needed to be, but give me a sense of that family feeling. It had to be different when you saw women you saw so well uh, claim this biggest every four-year prize that the sport has to offer. Absolutely. It was, I, I do consider this to be my fourth World Cup, you know, yeah. three times as a player and now one time sort of on the other side of the line. So, um, you know, it was a different uh, new challenge for me, but also an opportunity for me to share my passion uh, of the team and of the game and to hopefully get, you know, player, uh, new players and new people to love soccer in America. Um, and, and you know what? The, the national team, they didn't give me too much bad things to talk yeah, right. about from a from a newbie in broadcasters. <laughs> it was an absolute dream because obviously I you know I wanted them to do so well and they really delivered. So from my perspective, you know it was an, it was an easy job that I didn't have you know I didn't have to critique too much. I mean you know you have to be objective in, in certain regards and you know early in the tournament there were some players that. Um, you know, weren't getting as much time as they wanted, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the U.S. did not give too much for anyone to talk poorly on. You know, they, 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 they talked to the talk, and then they walked the walk, and that's what matters, and that's what America saw in the end. I don't know how much of this you got in Paris. Of course, social media can help you see what was going on back here in the United States. But what did you make of the story where, I don't know what the percentage is, it felt like the huge majority of our country 
felt the same way that we've always felt about the U.S. women's national team. Great role models on the field, great role models off the field. They're about as universally celebrated as any sports figures I've ever encountered. And yet there was some pushback, you know, the 13 goals against Thailand or excessive celebration or, you know, England was mad about this or host France was mad about that. What did you make of that part of this story? Because it, it, feel, it felt more complicated this time than it has been with other years. And, and you know the Megan Rapinoe aspect of this story uh, polarized some people as well. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, throughout the history of the national team, there has been different, you know, flavors and styles to the team. You've had, you know, sort of uh, the Golden Girls of 99 and, um, certainly, you know, Abby or Hope Solo or Carly, um, you know, have, have definitely been, uh, you know, strong personalities in the past. And then you see this team putting their own stamp on it. And, that, and, and that's what it's all about, really, is, is a team finding their unique style. And I think since the 2015 World Cup where, you know, players like myself and Abby and, and Hope and Shannon Box, like that was our last go-round, it has been a little bit of a question, you know, what is the definition of this team, of this group of players? And I think that they answered that. They are unapologetic about being confident. Um, You know, they have strong views. They're smart women. They get the work done on the field, which, by the way, is not easy. I I, I think that, you know, people just, you know, think that the U.S. team is so good. But for them to be in three consecutive finals, I mean, that is incredible. In a world where – women's football is catching up and you know i played over in england there is there is excellent football being played in europe and to, for the u.s team to be in three consecutive finals win two out of the three um it, it's just it's i think that we are seeing greatness right before our eyes I've, i'm so privileged to have been part of it for a long time as a player and i think for me to be on the outside of it this time i kind of can see the, the broader scope of what the team is, is able to do. And I think more than anything else, it, it's encouraging people to be confident with their voice and to back it up with action. And, and for that, I think that they um, are, you know, should be very proud. Did you have fun with the social media aftermath of this story with just, I mean, like, you know, Alex Morgan is twerking and it looks like some beverages were consumed on that flight. I know you were in Paris with your broadcast booth and the the women were in Lyon, so it's not like you were on the same flight together. But I wonder if you can paint more of that picture, just their personalities coming out. I just sensed, and, and you wore this jersey, so much family and personal and even, like, nutrition choices, sacrifices get made over four <laughs> years that it's just like a volcano erupting at the end, right? Yeah, no, it is. I think that you're absolutely right. You know, you have to um, make choices in your life, and most of those choices revolve around discipline. And also, you need to remember that the World Cup is a very stressful time. I mean, these were these were five weeks of intense, you know, scrutiny and performance and and things like that, where one mistake can yeah. cost you, right? So everybody's really um, tight. So it's no, it's no surprise that after something like that, you, you let loose, and you see that at the Olympics and and other sporting events all the time. Is is finally people unleashing kind of a, you know, a lot of stress and pressure and. Uh, the the thing about the U.S. team that's that's always been um, is this work hard, play hard mentality, and 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 not being, um, you know, not feeling bad about that, and 
uh, to some people that means partying, to other people it means other things. But um, it's, it's a, 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 I think the notion that when it's time to put the work in and the grind and the graft, you won't do it. And when it's the time to celebrate uh, your, you know, what you are able to accomplish, um, you do that hard as well. <laughs> and I think, uh, I think that that kind of defines the team and de- defines a lot of athletes, to be honest, that, that really play at an elite level. I mean, it's a, it's a really um, high-strung affair, I guess you could say. When you look at the less fun part of this, you know, the equal pay, the, the gender discrimination aspects of it all, uh, you know, there are fair points on both sides. The FIFA folks say, hey, wait a minute, there are three to, time, three to four times more viewers for the Men's World Cup than for the Women's World Cup. There's mega millions more money for the men than for the women. So FIFA says, well, it can't be perfectly equal pay until the economic model grows more for the women. But it's setting records here and abroad. I mean, one billion viewers by one measurement for the Women's World Cup this year, that's a record. What's your bottom line when you you know know about the lawsuit against U.S. soccer, which is one conversation, or just that huge disparity, $400 million in prize money for the men at the most recent World Cup and $30 million for the women at this year's World Cup? What's your bottom line? I know that's a complicated topic, but where do you stand? Yeah, it's complicated, but it's, it's, way, it's way too simple for anybody to look at it and be like, well, men bring in more. Well, of course, they have like a 70-year um, head start, <laughs> yeah, right. and, FIFA, and FIFA was a big part of that. And like you look at, for instance, the FA in England, and actually in the 40s, women were allowed to play soccer and, uh, or football, as they would call it, and they actually had these huge curves in England for women playing football. And then for 50 years, that would be 5 0, the FA cracked down and made it a male only sport. Mm. So women were actually not able to play until like the 90s. And so, um, you know, now it's a time of, uh, of self correcting. And, and you can't just say, well, the women don't bring it in. Well, uh, yeah, of course, like they went dark for 50 years. Right. And so, you know, something has to give and somebody needs to take leadership. So uh, I think that's what the women are saying is like, you know, we, you know, you need to recalibrate and recalculate because if we go at this pace, what is it? I mean, you know, it's never going to be equal and, right. and that's not right. And, and that's not actually what the people are calling for. Uh, it's just the way that it's been historically. So I think, you know, U.S. soccer, FIFA, and a lot of the federations need to take a hard look at themselves and say, we do need to recalibrate. What does that look like? That's a great point. And for those who don't know, the two most watched soccer matches in the United States of America in the last five years were the win over the Netherlands that Heather O'Reilly was just part of the, the analysis for for Fox Sports and the win U.S. over Japan four years ago in the Women's World Cup final. And that's not women's soccer. That's all soccer. So the women are leading the way in many of those ways. Heather, I, I know you're back with the courage now. I only have a few seconds, but uh, just tell us, how do you recalibrate? I mean, you gotta, you've got games to play now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's an interesting time for me, obviously. Um, so I announced before the season that this was going to be my last professional season. Uh, I just felt like the, it was the right one for me to hang up the boots. And it was uh, a wonderful, you know, coincidence, I guess, that, you know, Fox Sports asked me to be on on their team for the broadcast aspect. I'm very grateful to, for the courage for letting me sort of straddle both of those things this year and uh, transition, you know, smoothly out of my playing career. So, um, I always thought of it as kind of, you know, three, 
three parts to this season. Got the before World Cup, got during World yeah. Cup, and now I'm in the my third segment, uh, which is kind of my final my final lap. So I'm going to really take it all in as a player. And um, but you know, with with one eye on the future, and, and I know that my future is bright, whether it's in coaching or or TV yeah. or you know more TV work. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. But really trying to enjoy my time with my teammates. She's a rock star, Heather O'Reilly. Catch her this weekend playing for the North Carolina Courage. Thanks to Richard Justice for dropping by as well. We'll see you tomorrow on the David Glenn Show. Mr. President, Barack Obama, welcome to the David Glenn Show. How are you? David, it's great to be on. It's wonderful to, to talk to the folks in North Carolina. I always say uh, I love the state of North Carolina, love the people of North Carolina. Even the folks who don't support me down there are nice to me. The David Glenn Show.